First of all, I want to thank Evie for preaching there a moment ago. That was really helpful to the rest of us to hear that in context, wasn't it? Also, I have to say how much easier it is to preach after Core at 9. You know, we've not had Core at 9 for a while, and certainly not with stories, and I'm so encouraged and enthused after hearing Alice this morning. And um, that's just a way of inviting, if you weren't here, a way of inviting you to join us over the next few weeks at 9 o'clock here in the sanctuary or to do so online. I've learned over the years in preaching from the lectionary that often the selected scriptures avoid some of the hard questions or difficult passages. Now, that's not something that's likely to occur if you're just preaching, you know, step-by-step through a book of the Bible. And yet, as a lectionary-based church, it's something we want to be aware of. This week, I have to say, the authors of the lectionary have chosen not to avoid a teaching that's given rise to much confusion and even hardship. It's Jesus' words about divorce and remarriage. I won't avoid them either. And I want to lead us into a discussion of this material in Mark chapter 10 with an eye toward truthfulness, but also compassion and mercy. Roughly one half of all first marriages in our society end in divorce. The number is pretty much the same among Christians. We can avoid finger pointing and judgment because this is a product of human frailty and we're all affected in one way or another. We know the pain of it. We know its heartbreak, the hurt that is visited on children. No one goes into a marriage. I'd say most people don't go into marriage with the idea that it will be temporary. But those who go through divorce, even if they claim it to be amicable, deal with the pain and the trauma of how they got there. It's failure. Something that was alive has died. That's a death that is hard to grieve. None other than Canadian author Margaret Atwood says, a divorce is like an amputation. You survive, but there's less of you. So whatever Jesus says about this, we want to know. And too often, people have interpreted his words on this subject in legalistic and judgmental terms. And I remember in the church uh, where I grew up, and it was you know, a family church, in other words, a lot of extended family of my family, Those who were divorced, let alone remarried, were placed in a kind of permanent outsider status. They could not serve with children. They couldn't serve in other settings that were public. I remember um, one of my uh, relatives, a couple generations older than me, she was a gifted church organist. But she was barred from ever playing the organ again for worship because she was divorced, which was a a result of her husband abandoning her. She wasn't even remarried, but there was this stigma over her life, and the words of Jesus were used to exclude her from the community. Perhaps today we can discover ways of hearing Jesus' words in a different way. The Pharisees are back. (laughs) We always have Pharisees, don't we? And they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to undermine his teaching and land him in hot water with the authorities. They do this again here, or they do it again in a few uh, chapters with the question about taxation. That's the one we remember. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus says, show me the coin. Well, what they're hoping to do is get him to say something against Caesar that they could then take to charge him. So this strategy of coming to him over and over again asking questions, is, uh, it's designed to trap him. It's not to gain insight or wisdom. 
And they're doing the same thing here around the issue of divorce and remarriage. Now, they bring this question to him not because they just want to have an interesting conversation. There's a background. And the background is this. In Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist is beheaded because he'd spoken out against the divorce of King Herod, who did so in order to marry his brother's wife. So this was dangerous ground for Jesus, because the wrong answer could land him in the same kind of trouble. And this was actually a life and death challenge to him, and he knew it. So it's important as we hear his words on this, that we hear them in the context of a question put to him by hostile opponents. This isn't like a full teaching that he's unveiling to us about this particular subject. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, they knew the answer. It was lawful. It was lawful, and it was widespread. It reflected the total power that a husband had in the marriage. The wife was property. She had no rights. She had no status other than what was loaned to her by her husband. And he could send her away for the smallest offense, like burning the toast. That was the situation in Judaism. In the larger society, it was, it was rampant. In that Hellenistic society of the day, in the secular situation, though, a wife could divorce her husband as well. So the Pharisees knew very well it was legal. Jesus directs them to the scriptures. What did Moses command? Now they thought they had him because he's going to go on ground with Moses, and now we've got him, right? Moses said it was okay. He permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Certificate, by the way, freed her to remarry, and it removed any suspicion that she'd been guilty of adultery, which was a capital offense. Well, Jesus doesn't stop with Moses. He looks to the past through Moses, back to the beginning, the foundation of the marriage relationship, not just to Deuteronomy 24, which they're referring to. He said, you know, Moses wrote this law because your hearts are hard. Not because this was ever God's intention. What did God intend? God intended for a lifelong relationship in which the two become one. Two that are actually one. Not just metaphorical. Something metaphysical here. Something that is of a deep mystery. And I think it's why some traditions uh, approach marriage as a sacrament, because something happens in it that is profound. There's something real, and Jesus points to that. In the story, uh, in the narrative in Genesis 2, there's commitment in it, right? There's faithfulness, there's equality, there's love and care, there's compassion, there's forgiveness. I think it's all implied in the creation story. Instead, marriage had become a thing in which the husband had absolute power over his wife, and could send her into poverty and destitution at will. And the law of Moses was being used for justification. Jesus basically says, you know, Moses had to do this because you're so hard, you're so sinful. Things in society would have even been a greater mess than they are. And he did it all because your hearts could not display compassion and love toward the other. When he's alone with his disciples, they ask him about this. You know, of course. 
And he drives the point further. He says, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery with her. If she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This would have been shocking for the disciples to hear. It's shocking for us to hear. It's hard for us to hear. But perhaps it's no more shocking than his declaration that those who have lustful thoughts are guilty of adultery. And those who harbor hatred in their hearts are guilty of murder. Jesus wants them to know that marriage means something in God's work of creation and also sustaining life. It has great value. To violate it is destructive. It strikes at the heart of God's good creation. So I don't think Jesus is actually teaching us here about divorce and remarriage. I think he's teaching us about marriage. That's what he's holding up. His emphasis flows from the understanding of permanence that we see in Genesis 2. Two become one. How can you separate that once God has done some profound, mysterious thing? That's his real interest. And he's pushing back against the prevailing view that doesn't honor that intent or honor the equality of the wife or, or love and compassion and all that is supposed to be a part of that. I don't think Jesus is giving a new teaching here or issuing any new legal requirements about it. He's saying marriage is important. Let's understand it. Let's honor it. Let's not treat it simply as sort of a, a legal uh, sub-footnote. Now, we know not everyone will marry. And I think sometimes the church puts people in a position where that's, that's kind of the only honored status, right? Jesus didn't marry. Paul wasn't married, at least at the time when he was writing. And he even talks about this. Paul does. But to those that do enter marriage, I think we should see it as a long journey of faithful unity, not something that can be quickly cast aside when frustrations arise. <laughs> now, there's teaching on divorce in the Scripture other than this, for sure. And Paul touches on it in 1 Corinthians. And there are, the th- there are things that nullify the bond of marriage. I think we need to be clear about that. Adultery does. It breaks that bond. Abuse does. Abandonment does. These are all deeply painful and heartbreaking. And and marriages do end. They do. And those who have gone through that or children affected by it, they know only too well the pain of it. Jesus is not condemning those people. Jesus is not condemning you. He's upholding the original intention of marriage and urging his disciples to understand its importance. And he's urging us as the church to give care and support to marriages in line with its place in creation. Adultery is not the unforgivable sin. Divorce and remarriage in the Christian community can be met with compassion and mercy and the understanding that we're all frail. But we should do all we can in the church to support and care for one another, whatever our relational status. Because there is healing and there is restoration. Marriages can be healed. Marriages can be put back together. You probably know Rick and Kay Warren, at least you know them by name. One of the most public ministry couples in America. They, you look at them, you say, they have a pretty ideal marriage. Kay Warren says, no. <laughs> in fact, she said early on, their relationship descended into what she called marriage hell. Married at the age of 21, the brand new marriage took on an instant nosedive. 
And she wrote this just a few years ago. She says, we didn't even make it to the end of our two-week honeymoon to British Columbia before we knew our relationship was in serious trouble. We'd been warned about five areas of potential conflict that all couples have to deal with. And we immediately jumped into all five of them. Sex, communication, money, children, and in-laws. Then we argued about our arguments, and we began to layer resentment on top of resentment. It was a perfect setup for misery and disenchantment. She said when healing started to come, it was agonizing, and it was slow. She said, I don't approach this subject from kind of the hallmark card version of marriage, but from the blood, sweat, and tears of the trenches where our marriage was forged and sustained. I know what it's like to choose to build our relationship, to seek marriage counseling again and again, to allow our small group and our family into the struggle, to determine one more time to say, let's start over. Please forgive me. I was wrong, and I forgive you. She said, I know what it's like to admit that my way isn't the only way to see the world, and to try to imagine what it's like to be on the other side of me to choose to focus on what is good and right and honorable in my husband instead of what drives me crazy. To turn attraction to another man into attraction to my husband. (laughs) I know what it's like, she said, to be cracked open by catastrophic grief and to share it with your spouse when you're so different. Each of us is not who the other was looking for, but each of us is who the other desperately needed to become the person we each are today. But it's also been the very best thing that's ever happened to either of us. We wouldn't be who we are today without each other. The shrieks of iron sharpening iron have often sounded like gears grinding on bare metal, but the result has been profound personal growth in both of us. That's pretty raw. That is pretty real. And maybe you know the reality of that, to one degree or another, if you are a married person or were married. And you know what? Hearts that are hard cannot do that work. That's what Jesus pointed to the Pharisees. You don't even get it. Your hearts are hard. You can't even see the work that needs to be done. It requires the willingness to be broken open and made new. To set aside the pride, the claim to being right, The insistence that my way is superior. This is what the Pharisees weren't able to do. It's what Jesus models and what he asks of us. And not just in marriage, but in all of our relationships. I really, you know, Stephanie and I do not share notes beforehand. But she she said something really profound, and I appreciate it, and it, it just fits right into where we are. And she says, you know, let's learn to see with God's eyes. The other. We are made in God's image. All of us made in the image of God. Worthy of honor. Worthy of care. And we are living in a time where we're divided by issues. And we're divided by some of it's silly. Some of it's uh, diabolical. And we begin to see other people as enemies. We begin to see those that we we set ourselves against. Maybe it's a spouse, but maybe it's somebody here in the church. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's somebody that we don't even know that well in politics or other places. 
But any time that policies or positions or points of doctrinal precision are more important than people, those made in God's image, then we know we're in danger of operating out of a hardened heart. When we can operate with love and compassion and forgiveness towards others, whether that is our spouse or someone else, even our enemies, as Jesus said, then we make reconciliation possible and we catch glimpses of God's kingdom among us. There's a story of a couple that went to see a pastor because they just weren't getting along and they decided to, to end their marriage. And they knew the pastor would give them affirmation, right? Because it's not working out, we don't have feelings for each other anymore, and so they went to the pastor and you know, they just wanted him to say, give, give the blessing and say, yeah, you, you've come to the end, you probably should do that. And uh, he said to the husband, he said, well, can you, can you at least like, love your wife in the way that you know, she's special and honoring to you this relationship that God has given you? And he's like, no, I don't, I don't think I can do that. He says, well, can you at least follow the Lord's uh, insistence that you love your neighbor as yourself? Maybe your wife could be your neighbor. He says, no, I can't do that either pastor that said, well, then you just have one thing left. Love your enemies. I think it's actually, partly anyway, this concern with hardened hearts that links our episodes. What, why is Jesus meeting children here? What's that got to do with anything that the Pharisees bring? Well, the Pharisees had a hard heart. They operated without the concern of others. The disciples saw the children as an inconvenience, a nuisance that needed to be sent away. There's plenty of hard hearts here. But also in these passages, there's a concern for the vulnerable, those with no status, women and children. Jesus responds with his love and also with his justice. And those things, usually you'll find them together. I have to say, I'm not sure how to end this sermon. I just left it open-ended for a while, and I've been, um, it's not neat. Sometimes I have a little story. I can kind of wrap it up with a bow and finish and go sit down. It's not that neat this week because I've been wrestling with it, and I, I, because I think it has something to do with the state of our hearts, though. How is your heart today? How is mine? Do you even know? Is there someone that you're struggling with in terms of your heart? Maybe it's yourself. Maybe it is a spouse. Maybe it's a church member. You know, there are many reasons in this day and time for our hearts to begin to calcify, to start to get the the hardening of the arteries around the heart. So where do we begin? Well, I think one of the things that we do is we pray. We really pray. We say, Lord, what is my heart? What do you see? What does it look like to you? What am I missing? And then we begin to pray for those that particularly we struggle with. Maybe all we can do is say, Lord, help me to pray for them. I really can't pray for them, but I want you to help me to do that. Help me to see them like you see them. 
Help me to pray good things for them. And then over time, maybe to actually be able to come to pray good things. The heart of Jesus is the heart of love. And it's a heart that is it's tender. Right? It's, it's open. <laughs> it's risky. The hardened heart is some other thing but it's not the safe heart of the Father. I didn't know after saying that how I was going to end, but I'm going to end with a song. Because <laughs> um, it came to mind, some of you will know this one. Um, it's just simple. I'll just sing it, and this will be how we draw it. Just, just pray along with me in this.